0: It's good to see more of, more of us being able to gather as vaccinations are happening, other things are happening and developing, and uh, gathering in person. We're actually reaching the place where our natural, uh, all-along, Baptistic social distancing kind of kicks in anyway, so um, uh, we're glad that, uh, that uh, we're able to come together like this. What is... The most valuable thing on earth? I posted that a couple days ago on the, my Facebook page saying that that was going to be the theme of the message. What is the most valuable thing on earth? And there's all kinds of ways to get at that question, and the different routes you can take would get you to g- different good answers, different right answers. But if you think of something that you can actually touch and handle and, and hold in your hands, what's the most Precious, valuable thing on earth. Well, here's what I was thinking as I asked that. A right and saving relationship with God begins, when you think about it, because of God's Word. A healthy, genuine relationship with God continues because of God's Word. And we experience the freedom and the blessings of salvation, of being a Christian. And we'll spell out why I'm saying these things as we go. Because of God's word. Your Bible is God's word. And that's why you could make the case, and many have, that this really is the most valuable thing on earth it says in the preface to the English Standard Version translation this book is the most valuable thing that the world affords here is wisdom this is the royal law these are the lively living oracles of God Those words echo the King James Bible translators who wrote in 1611, God's sacred word is that inestimable treasure that excelleth all the riches of the earth. And these assertions reflect what Scripture itself says about the value of the word of God written down. Or a word that takes a little getting used to, but I kind of like inscripturated. It's been put into Scripture. It's been written down, the words of God. Remember how the psalmist in Psalm 19 says this about the words of God. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. And I can sound just kind of fanciful or poetic or symbolic, but when you think about what these words rightly responded to can do, and what they accomplish, what they produce, the effects that they have, it's not an exaggeration to talk this way. So compare to your portfolio, compared to whatever other uh, actual Precious possessions that you have and they have great value and you could give a cash value for them. If you really think about it, this book is more valuable than they are. Psalm 119, the law, the instruction from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. And so here at South And part of what triggered this message was last Sunday evening's baptismal service. At baptism, each person getting baptized at South gets a gift from South. And it's the best one that I can think for us to give. They're given a Bible. It's also a time of year when we just elected new officers. That too is a good time to think about our Bibles if you're going to be a good leader in Christ's church, to focus on what do we have when we have a Bible? And what place, what role, what function should the Bible have in our lives individually and in the life of our church? As a preview of what we'll think about together today, Let me share this assertion from the great theologian, Bible commentator, and pastor, John Stott. He would have, if he'd lived longer, would have been 100 years old this past week. He said this, and he said it throughout his ministry, the greatest single secret of spiritual development for you, for our church, lies in the personal, humble, believing obedient response to the Word of God. The habits we're in in relationship to our Bibles is the most important thing about us spiritually. So the first point that we must be clear on is simple but essential. That this Bible is in fact the Word of God written. What, What Scripture says, God says. Wrote St. Augustine, and it arises out of so many passages, but I want to just remind you of one, 2 Timothy 3.16, where staggeringly and importantly, the Apostle Paul says, all Scripture, and the word Scripture means writings. So not just all the musings of prophets and poets in the past, All their thoughts and ideas in some vague, but then they're lost to history kind of way. No. All that got written down in the scriptures is, Paul says, God breathed. The old translations, inspired by God, and that's not bad, but people began to say, well, Shakespeare was kind of inspired when he wrote. That's not what it means, (laughs) merely what it means. It means breathed out by God. How do my words that form in my brain get to your ear? They've got to be breathed out. I speak them. And so Paul says, all Scripture, everything that's been written down in our Bibles is God's own speech. What Scripture says, God says. If we had time, we could clearly show that Jesus himself, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, follow him in this too. Jesus himself unmistakably regarded the Bible he had as the infallible, truth-telling, always authoritative words from God. He met temptation at a crucial time in the wilderness. And what was his weapon? It is written. And he quoted the Scriptures. He regarded it, he treated the Word of God, and he taught that the Scriptures are the Word of God. He quotes an obscure psalm, and we've talked about this before, to cinch a point that he's making, to clinch a point that he's making with the Pharisees, a little phrase from one of the psalms, and he says, almost as an aside, that's how uh, foundational an idea it was to him, and Scripture cannot be broken, that's what Jesus believed about his Bible. 2 Timothy 3:15 tells us that God's purpose in giving us his inspired, written down word is to instruct us for salvation. The wisdom that leads to salvation How do I come to be right with God? How do I get rid of my guilt? How do I get my sins forgiven? How do I get the help of the Holy Spirit to become a new creation, a new new kind of person? All the things that salvation involves. This is the book that tells you, that gives you the wisdom that leads to salvation. You know, we use the phrase so often, God's word, word of God. We can kind of miss what we're saying. Think about the fundamental connection between a person and their communicated words. How you respond to a message from someone is how you respond to them. Just, that's just, I hope that seems obvious. Let me try a little bit of example. Um, If you get a love note from your spouse, but still you're sullen and cool in relationship to her or to him, and you say, oh, I'm not doubting you, I just didn't believe that note you wrote. And you, not believing their communication to you is not believing them. You get an email from your boss detailing what he'd like to be done, or what she'd like to be done during the day. And at the end of the day, you've done none of it. And you come as the boss kind of dissatisfied, or the boss comes kind of dissatisfied, and you said, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't ignoring you. I was ignoring your message. Now, he's like, what in the world did that mean? You get a text message from a friend about something to do later on in the day, but you don't show up. And you say, oh, I didn't, I didn't ignore you, I ignored your text. You get a summons, a written summons, I don't know exactly how it works, I should my wife working in a law office now, but you get some kind of written summons from a judge and you, and you don't go. You don't show up. And eventually you're hauled in and you, know, you treat it with... Oh, I didn't treat you with contempt. I just treated your message with contempt. And when we say that, it's like, no, 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 the way you respond to someone's message is how you respond to the person. And I want to tell you that's exactly... What's going on in our response and interaction with the Bible? That's the upshot of our saying, rightly, this is God's Word. It is God continually, continually addressing us. That's what we have in our Bibles. God's Spirit-inspired, and scripturated, written-down message to us every day. What Scripture says, God says. Consider what else this means to say that the Bible, your Bible, is the Word of God. Every true thought you've ever had about God's saving love and grace came to you ultimately from the Bible. We know about God's majesty and his power from creation. But the truths about his grace, his salvation plan, his redeeming love, the only truthful, always reliable source of that knowledge are the written down words of God that you have in your Bible. It may have come to you via a sermon, a book, a podcast, a song, a conversation with a friend. But if it was a true idea about God, it came from the Bible. There are different aspects, too, of God's Word, and this is important. Not quite genres, but hear what I'm saying, and I think you get the idea. Some of God's written-down words are revelations, self-disclosures about him. They tell us, they show us what God is like. And the right response to those aspects of God's word is worship. And so in a passage like Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7 Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. We'll say more about a wonderful passage like that tonight as we gather around the Lord's table. But that's a revelation about God and is written down words. That's the truth about God and the right response to those kinds of words in your Bible is worship there are the teachings from God in your Bible calling us to belief in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth the follower of Jesus believes all the words of God when it teaches them about creation They believe. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. The believer in Jesus believes the written down words of God. That's the truth too. It may not seem right to you, may not seem logical at first to you, or maybe in some mysteries we never can comprehend it by our own logic. The point is, if they're God's words... The right response of finite, weak creatures like us for sure is to believe them to be true. Your Bibles contain promises of God. They call us to trust. When you encounter God's promises, that's the right response. The greatest promise, the one that is the climax of all of them, is the promise of the gospel itself. All the promises of God are in one way or another this God who was just described in Exodus chapter 34 saying, I will do good to you. I will be your God and you'll be my people. I'll be your shepherd. I'll be your father. I'll be your redeemer. I'll be your king. All those promises. And the right response to those words of God is to trust. And so when those promises come to their climax of God's going to do good to you, He's going to hapify you, He's going to bring you to salvation, like they do in a verse like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The right response. I've got to believe that. I've got to put my trust that that's true. And whosoever is a big word, it includes me. If I trust in him, turning from my sin, I won't perish in condemnation and guilt and judgment, but I'll have everlasting life with his acceptance, with his favor, and with his everlasting blessing. The warnings are in God's Word too. And the right response to those is to take them very, very seriously. John three thirty six: he who believes on the Son has everlasting life. There's another one of the promises, but right next to it is the warning. He who rejects the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The warnings in the Bible, warnings too for Christians, professing Christians who are playing loose and careless with the call to holiness. The right response to those written down words of God is to heed those warnings and to be turned and changed by them. The commands of God call us to obedience. Jesus said, Fundamental to be made a disciple like we talked about last Sunday night in the service teaching them to obey everything I've commanded 1 Thessalonians 4 we instructed you how you ought to live in order to please God as in fact you are living Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Go further and deeper and wider in your obedience. For you know what instructions, these authoritative instructions that Paul wrote down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And then he gets very specific. In a way that was needed in his day, in a way that is needed in our day, that you should avoid sexual immorality. The right response to the commands of God are to obey them. These kinds of commands, too. Rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And if it's God's will for you, given that he's a perfectly good God, his will is a perfectly good will. So whenever I'm out of compliance, whenever I'm not lined up with the words of God and command, I need to know that's no good for me and that's no good for others in my life. I need to get to the place where I pray a lot more. We aspire to these things. We'll never fully achieve them. But the true believer in Jesus constantly aspires and aims and endeavors towards them. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always. At the very least, that says, I'm not going to just indulge my tendency to sulk and to simmer And to live in discontent and complaint. Not when those kinds of commands are in the written down words of God. So the key is to be rightly responding to the word of God that addresses us through our Bibles. So I want to give just kind of a Christian history, a Christian autobiography... Faith store, a testimony of engaging with the Word of God. In our stories about coming to Christ and living before God, there will be a lot of things that are different, a lot of things that are unique. But some things should be in place for every true believer in Jesus. I want to start out by quoting an old but wise hymn that we sing occasionally. At Calvary, it gives spiritual autobiography in those lyrics. So, phase one of engaging with God's Word is indifference. Not caring. Blind and deaf. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Vanity and pride. I wasn't really committed to anything that amounted to anything. And the thing that I mattered most was that people made much of me. And many of us could say that that took up years. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Just totally clueless. Maybe you kind of knew it. Maybe you even raised with it, but you didn't care. Indifference to God's Word that's addressing. God's calling all people everywhere to repent. Paul says in Acts 17, every day that message is addressing every human being. Then there's conviction leading to conversion. Because by God's Word, at last, my sin I learned. And then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. There comes a time and it comes in all kinds of different ways when a person comes to realize, wait a minute, this God is holy, this God is real, this God is living, and this is the one with whom I have to do. And I am not right with him. And that awareness hits us in all kinds of ways. Sometimes deep guilt. Sometimes a deep sense of weakness and failure. But we come to know, I'm not right with this good God. And we tremble. And it's because by God's word, at last my sin I learned. And I trembled at the law, the moral good will of God, that spoke to me through conscience too, That I had spurned until my guilty soul, imploring, praying, begging God for mercy, turned to Calvary. And mercy there was great. And grace, I found out, is free. And pardon was multiplied to me there my burdened soul found liberty at calvary and the catalyst for that whole process was what we find in the word of god faith comes by hearing hearing the word of god hearing the message of christ james 1:18 he chose to give us birth Through the word of truth. That's the catalyst for it. So this time, going further in the spiritual autobiography, to a wonderful summary. It's a little long, but bear with me. A wonderful summary about what happens in true conversion. And I urge you to listen in and see if the main things in your faith story echo what's in this faith description. What happens then in a true conversion is that faith comes to life in the mind as the reality of the truths about Christ, whether they've been read or heard, begin to take life and be felt. In some shape or form, these truths center on God's holiness and love. Christ's self-giving for us and in our place on the cross. His triumph over sin that we've sung about this morning, over sin, death, and the devil, and our sense of corruption, guilt, misery, and despair. I can't change. I can't save myself. Then we hear the words of grace in the gospel, which is good News, another synonym for message, communication. Emotions may well be stirred, for although the perception of spiritual reality isn't in self, isn't itself emotional. Distress, fear, shame, and then hopeful joy are at different times the result of coming to realize the truths of the gospel. Faith, beginning as this knowledge, this real understanding of the truths of the Christian faith, faith, this knowledge, blossoms into an ascent in which the will is now engaged. I do put my faith in Jesus. And ascent issues into heartfelt trust, and from this trust flows real repentance and the turning from sin to Christ. And it's the Word of God that's the catalyst for all of that again. Does that sound like your faith story? The link between trusting and obeying. We'll never submit to the Word of God that commands us until we truly trust in the gospel word of promise that saves us and assures us that we're forgiven, that we're adopted, that we're justified, and that we are dearly loved by God. Ha huh. Jesus loves me. That's the fundamental reality. This I know. How do you know? Ah. Huh. The theme of the message. The Bible tells me so. That's what I'm saying. That's why this is the most <laughs> valuable thing in the world. A lot of time, the world sends the signal, you don't deserve to be loved. You're not worthy of being loved. You're certainly not worthy of being forgiven, of heaven, of hoping for joy, of hoping for good. Satan's the accuser that's always saying that one way or another. That's his message. That's his message. Thank heaven, literally, that there is this book that contradicts that every time and says, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And you're shifting emotions. Sometimes you kind of feel like and hope that it can be true, but whatever you're shifting emotions, to, I'm glad he wrote it down. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. And so we see that a right and saving relationship with God begins when we rightly respond to the words of God. But that's only the beginning. It's crucial, Jesus says, and we need to hear this this day and age, like New Testament times too, it's crucial not that we seem to have just a good beginning, but that we continue. In John eight thirty one, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, who had made a profession of faith, as it were, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth increasingly and the truth will set you free so Jesus reiterates the wonderful effects that the working of the Word of God has in our lives but we've got to continue in it we've got to persevere perseverance is the mark of true faith of real disciples a genuine believer remains abides in Jesus Word. such a person Believes it, obeys it, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces and voices contradict it. And so Jesus realistically gives the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils. Four different kinds of soils. Some totally indifferent to the Word of God. It's in uh, Matthew 13 and Luke 8. Some respond emotionally at first, but when tribulation or a persecution arises because of the word, I'm out. Others begin, it seems like, to grow and to blossom, but life's worries or riches or pleasures choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The only soil that really bears fruit that indicates that salvation has really arrived is the soil that receives the Word and holds it fast and bears fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold in a changing life to the jews who would profess faith in him jesus understandably enough explains what genuine faith does it perseveres it holds tight to jesus teaching with some glorious consequences but such faith costs not less than everything and the freedom it brings presupposes the life before such faith is pitiful slavery slavery to sin and to satan But if you continue in the Word, you'll increasingly know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free from your guilty fears. The truth of God's Word will set you free from the moral cluelessness that characterizes apart from the wisdom of God's Word. We'll find the right path finally, the way to shalom. The truth will set you free from the sense of guilt and hopelessness and purposelessness. But we've got to continue. And we do so in the fellowship of the church, with brothers and sisters spurring us on to continue love and good works under the direction, accountability, and care of pastor-teachers, Ephesians 4 and Hebrews 13. We proclaim Christ, Paul says admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So we, the most important thing that we do, we gather around the Bible in all kinds of ways, not just for more head knowledge, not just as Pastor Neil says, for information, but for transformation in all the beautiful ways that the Bible describes. Passages like Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. John 14 talks about a special presence of the Lord in the life of the person obedient to Jesus word. And to all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And if we really trust the gracious promises of God, we will continue to obey the commands and the words of God. This word, and I need to come to a close, is living and active. It's active to give life and to bear fruit and to renew and to liberate and to change and to bring joy and to bring peace and to bring assurance when it meets with faith and obedience. But it's also active in conviction and judgment when it meets with unbelief and defiance. Jesus said, if anyone hears my words but doesn't keep them, I do not judge that person, for I didn't come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge, Jesus went on to say, for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, he then says, the very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. And so when met with repentance and faith, the word of God is active to bring salvation and all salvation's joys. But when it is responded to with unbelief, indifference, and defiance, God's word is still at work, but to bring judgment. But in either case, it's active and effective to accomplish God's purposes. It never fails. As the Lord said to the prophet Isaiah, my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And so... That's why the Bible says more than once today, if you're hearing his voice, don't harden your heart. And that's why James said to those who claim to be Christians, doers, not just hearers of the word of God. Some of it I'll have to save for another time. That won't surprise anyone. Let me finish with this. This Lord's Day, read at least some of Psalm 119 to see if your attitude to the Word of God in Scripture is the same as King David's. If you think about it the way we've said it this morning, I think you can see why I join others in saying that this is the most valuable thing in the world. Holy Bible, book divine... Precious treasure thou art mine. Mine to teach me whence I came. Where did I come from? Mine to teach me what I am. Mine to chide me when I rove. Mine to show a Savior's love. Mine thou art to guide and guard. Mine to punish or reward. Mine to comfort in distress. Suffering in this wilderness. And mine to say, by living faith, man can triumph over death. Mine to tell of joys to come and the rebel sinner's doom. O thou holy book divine, precious treasure, thou art mine. Father, for many of us, we know these things, but we need to know them more controllingly and compellingly. Maybe for some, this is a kind of a new way to think about the Bible. Your word, your message, always addressing us, including this morning. In Christ's name, amen.